You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 6, 2024. I'm Jessica from Drake University. Here is our first story. The first headline reads, Enemy in the Heartland, Iowa had POW champs. Library lecture explores how World War II prisoners worked in fields in Clarinda. While thousands of young Iowans bravely fought in World War II, the impact from that conflict hit close to home for two Midwestern communities. Prisoner of war camps erected in Clarinda and Algana held captives from each of the Axis powers, though most were German soldiers. They filled an important need. There was a serious shortage of farm laborers, Simpson College assistant history professor Chad William Tim told an audience about 35 minutes, about 35 during a presentation at the Council Bluffs Public Library on Tuesday night. Those in the POW camp served on a local farm. Tim's presentation, Enemy in the Heartland, Axis POWs in Iowa, 1943-1946, started in the Pacific when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The United States' immediate focus was fighting the Japanese. But when Germany declared war against the U.S. shortly thereafter, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was pressured to fight a second front against the Axis powers, when the so- with the Soviets fighting from the east. The first step was to aid British forces in North Africa. Eventually, the British captured a large group of German soldiers, but due to a housing shortage, the government requested help from America, which reluctantly agreed. It's still unclear how Clarinda and Algana sought these campsites, though Tim believes that that local chamber officials knew others from neighboring states who touted economic benefits of these camps. The population of those towns double in size. That might have been motivation, Tim said. Iowa political leaders in Washington, including Vice President Henry Wallace, born in Adair County, also pushed for POW camps in the state to ease the farm labor shortage. Sites in Clarinda and Algana acquired through Element Domain were eventually chosen, in part because the land was outside their communities and adjacent to railroad, railroad tracks for offloading train cars full of prisoners. That way, Prisoners did not have to be transferred through the towns to the camps. As the war progressed, the need for farm labor was intensifying, according to Tim. Iowa farmers were getting pressured to meet food production goals, he said. They were asked to do this with less. After several months of construction, the Clarinda and Algana camps both opened in January 1944. The Clarinda camp consisted of 20... 293 acres, and the Algana camp, slightly smaller, 287 acres. Each was built to house approximately 3,000 prisoners, though neither ever filled to capacity. During 1944, German POWs worked on farms doing all kinds of work, Tim said. They were detasseled, pulling, pulled weeds out of the beans. Over time, the prisoners formed a friendly relationship with the local residents. Many farmers could speak, said some German, Tim said. Not all the German prisoners belonged to the Nazi party, but those who were were much more unresponsive to orders, according to Tim. Those prisoners working within the camp earned 10 cents a day, 
while those working outside, like in the fields, earned 80 cents a day, Tim said. The camp had its own news. Paper and the prisoners frequently purchased cigarettes, chocolates, and beer, which they said was weak compared to the brew back home, Tim said. Their chief sport was soccer, but chess and tennis, like game, were also popular, he said. The German prisoner enjoyed prisoners enjoyed music with the help of donated instruments from the locals, and they purchased on their own a 15-piece orchestra was formed towards the end of the stay, Tim said. There were no escape attempts at Camp Clorinda, he said, with only one person attempting escape at Algana, who was quickly caught. In other states, there were German POW escapes, Tim said. The German POWs lived at Camp Clorinda from January 1944 to the following January when they began moving to Camp Algana and were replaced by Japanese prisoners. When the Japanese came to Clorinda, there were concerns, Tim said. Obviously, folks were still bitter about the Pearl Harbor attacks, plus hearing reports of brutal treatment by the Japanese to American POWs. Nobody in the area could speak Japanese, making any kind of relationship difficult. Very few folks showed any interest in the Japanese POWs for farming, Tim said. Nevertheless, more than 100 area farmers received help from these prisoners, he said. Clorinda's POW camp stayed open until January 1946. Today, no evidence of the camps remain in Clorinda, Tim said. The next headline reads, Women Charged for December 20, 24th Death. The Pacific Junction woman was arrested in Council Bluffs on Thursday in connection with the Christmas Eve death of a 74-year-old pedestrian. Angela Thurman, of 47, was charged with homicide by vehicle operating while under the influence and possession of a controlled substance, according to a news release from the Council Bluffs Police Report, Police Department. The charges stem from a collision in a West End neighborhood that killed Juan Avalos, shortly after 3.30 a.m. on December 24, 2023. A Potawatomi County judge set Thurman's bail at $150,000. As of Monday, she was listed as an inmate at the Potawatomi County Jail. According to an advalent, Avalos was standing on Popular Street near the driver's side door of his 2003 GMC envoy when he was struck by an eastbound vehicle allegedly driving by Thurman. Avalos was dragged 55 feet beneath the 2012 Dodge Ram cargo van before it came to a stop with him trapped underneath. He was declared dead by members of the Council Bluffs Fire Department at 3.44 a.m. The autopsy report released on February 1st lists cause of death as traumatic compression asphyxia. Asphyxia is a clinical term for suffocation. At the scene, Thurman told Council Bluffs police that she believed she had clipped the mirror of Avalos's vehicle, never saw him in the road, and did not realize he was under the vehicle until she attempted to drive away and the vehicle wouldn't move, according to an advalent. Thurman had slurred, raspy speech, droopy eyes, appeared lethargic, and had uncontrollable emotions. And after a series of tests to determine whether she was impaired, officers concluded that Thurman was under the influence of drugs. At the scene, Thurman had admitted having taken clonazepam, a depressant commonly prescribed to treat seizures, panic disorders, and anxiety for which she, was, she had a prescription. 
Officers asked Thurman if she would consent to accompany them to the jail for further tests. She was advised by police about her rights and she was and told she was not under arrest at that time. At the jail, Thurman underwent further testing and consented to providing a urine sample while a search warrant was obtained for a blood sample. Officers also recovered two prescription bottles for colozapam from Thurman's purse. The one bottle bottles allegedly contained five Arizopan, other prescription drug known as the brand Xanax, which she got from her sister. When per- police recovered the toxicology report from the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation on January 30th, it showed the presence of both colonosapan and apraxlazone, along with anthenamine, methamphetamine, and marijuana. Thurman's court records in Iowa showed two previous convictions for operating while intoxicated and five previous convictions convictions for possession of controlled substances. She also faced a current driving under the influence warrant out of Nebraska and a pending drug possession charge stemming from a November 2023 arrest for which she posed $1,000 bail. Homicide by vehicle, the most serious of the new charges, is a Class B felony punishable by no more than 25 years in prison. The next headline reads, AEA bill will not move forward. Area Education Agencies. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to overhaul the state's area education agencies won't move forward in the House, the chair of Chambers Education Committee said this week. Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler of Hull, the committee chair, halted the bill's advancement after a subcommittee meeting on Wednesday, saying he wanted further conversations before taking action. In a Facebook post the next day, Wheeler said the bill will not move forward in the committee. The most recent version of Governor Reynolds' proposed bill will give students the ability to opt out of AEA's special education services and seek them from another party. She said the charge is necessary as the test scores of Iowa students with disabilities have have lagged and the state spends a comparatively high amount on those students without seeking top-level results. We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes, Reynolds told reporters this week. Though the House bill has stalled, Wheeler and Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said they are still interested in working on legislation to address special education in Iowa. I have felt compelled to work on this issue because this is about our kids and we have to get it right if we are going to make changes, Wheeler said in a post. I believe we have absolutely, we absolutely have room to improve, and we need to continue to have those discussions. I think it's vastly important to have all of the stakeholders come together, work through this, get consensus, and move forward. Wheeler did not immediately respond to a further request for further comment on Friday. Dozens of people, including school administration and parents, of students with disabilities urged lawmakers to slow down on a bill in a pair meeting on Wednesday, warning that the bill could weaken opportunities for special education in the state. A number of superintendents spoke in favor of the bill, saying they want to have control over their special education funding. The bill, Senate Study Bill 3073, passed out of a Senate subcommittee on Thursday. The Republicans on the panel, though, 
The governor's bill was not sufficient and would likely see charges. Changes. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford told reporters on Thursday that the majority party agrees they need to do something, but suggested Reynolds' bill would not be the final product. We want to try to put a plan together that we feel best suits our school districts that we all represent. He said, we're obviously going to work with some of the framework that the governor laid out, but we also want to sit down with the stakeholders and see what price it, pieces maybe we can do that fit what we're trying to get to. Democrats voted against the proposal in both chambers on Wednesday. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, D. Windsor Heights, said on Thursday that Republicans are in disarray after they failed to agree on the AEA proposal. As we watch arguments continue to happen in broad daylight in front of us while they disagree on where to go, we are united in proposing our legislation and fighting every day for Iowans, Confers said. House GOP leaders call for reset. Grassley said he wants a reset in the conversation about the bill, but thinks House Republicans can preserve a number of provisions in Reynolds' proposal. He said he supports the provisions around accountability for the AEAs, but wants to make sure school districts and parents have certainty around the services they receive. Grassley said the fee-for-service model and the governor's proposal, which would allow schools to contact contract with the AEAs and opt in or out of different services, could be presented as Republicans work on a new proposal. I think we can do that, but we just want to make sure that there's certainty over the next several years for school districts, and like I said, more importantly, certainty for parents receiving these services, because right now we feel that that's one piece that's being lost in the conversation, he said. In an appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS on Friday, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer R. Grimes said he's optimistic about finding a compromise on the bill and the Senate plan to continue working on the governor's proposal. I don't know about starting from scratch because it is totally different bill now than it was three weeks ago, he said, but we're going to have to continue this conversation and make the case for why these reforms are necessary if it's going to become a law. Democrats urged continue activism. Des Moines Democratic lawmakers said in a forum on the AEA bill on Friday that the emails and activism from people opposed to the, law, the bill has been effective in helping slow it down and preventing Republicans from getting behind the proposal. Democrat Senator Sarah Torn Garrett of, of Waukee said a press, opposition from House Republicans is the most likely way the bill will be stopped. When you speak up, it's a powerful thing. So don't ever think it's just not enough, or it's too little, said Representative Mary Madison D. West Des Moines. But together, we're a powerhouse. So come to the Capitol, use those public forums, and continue your emails. The next headline reads, Immigration may lose benefits in state tuition. Over the protest of immigrants, and activists who filled Iowa State Capitol Committee rooms this week, Republican lawmakers advanced bills that would put stricter limitations on undocumented immigrants. The bill would make undocumented immigrants ineligible for in-state tuition and public assistance programs and creating a new penalty for transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants. Republicans said the bill would de-incentivize legal 
illegal immigrants into Iowa and ensure the taxpayer money does not go to people who are not in the U.S. legally. Opponents of the bill said they would punish immigrant communities and instill fear in already vulnerable population. Hardworking Iowa taxpayers should not be footing the bill for individuals who are not in the country legally through any public assistance programs or tuition benefits, Iowa Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley wrote in a newsletter. Additionally, we cannot allow our state's policies to essentially incentivize people to come to our country illegally. That would be unsustainable and unfair to those who do follow the, pro follow the proper process to immigrate legally. Removing in-state tuition for undocumented residents. House File 2128 requires that a person provide a proof of U.S. citizenship or proof that they are lawfully present in the country to be considered for in-state tuition at Iowa's public universities and community colleges. Immigrants and activists speaking to an Iowa House subcommittee on Monday said the bill would deny education to a swath of Iowans who grew up and pay taxes in the state. According to estimates from the Migration Policy Institute, there were about 37,000 undocumented immigrants in Iowa as of 2019. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, created legal protections for some people born before 2007 who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children. Most undocumented graduating high school students today are not eligible for DACA, according to FWD.US, an immigration political advocacy organization. Ari Davis was among the many people who spoke out against the bill on Monday. She said she came to the U.S. from Mexico at three years old. She received DACA status and paying in-state tuition, went to Des Moines Area Community College, then graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in criminal justice. She said she has started a family, bought a home in Iowa, and became a U.S. citizen two years ago. But I can assure you that I've been an American since I was three years old, she said. I'm here to defend the pursuit of happiness for other Americans who are lacking legal status of American, but are American in every, other sing every single other way. Representatives for Iowa's public universities and community colleges said the bill would be an administrative challenge for colleges and universities who would need to inquire about citizenship of every prospective student. State universities' current tuition guidelines allow anyone who graduated from an Iowa high school to claim residency in the state for tuition purposes. The bill was passed out of the subcommittee by Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler of Hull and Tyler Collins of Minneapolis. Republican Sammy Sheets, D.C. Rapids, voted against the bill, calling it a bill, calling it a bill that's in search of a problem. Collins said it was, in part, an answer to the rising rates of unlawful boarding crossings under President Joe Biden. If you come to this country illegally, we are going to subsidize your college education, Collins said. The problem is, we've had 7 million people come into this country illegally under President Joe Biden, and at some point we're going to have to address the, that issue. Members of the House Judiciary Committee voted 13-7 on Thursdays, with Democrats and one Republican opposed, to advance the bill for debate and a vote for the full House. Bill would limit public assistance, create penalties for smuggling of persons. 
Another bill would require non-citizens to be legal residents in order to obtain public assistance programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid. The bill requires non-citizens to submit documentation about their status and require the state to use a federal tool to determine citizenship status. Federal law already prohibits an undocumented immigrant from receiving public assistance benefits. The bill, House File 2112, would also create a penalty for smuggling of persons. The bill would make transporting or harboring an undocumented person with the intent to conceal them from law enforcement a crime under state law. Republic Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who chaired the subcommittee on the bill, said Iowa State Patrol officers have experiences of being unable to detain a person who is transporting undocumented immigrants through the state, which he hopes the bill can address. The bill is essentially is essential for law enforcement to be able to protect both citizens and non-citizens, Holt said. There is nothing moral about what is happening on our border. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, deadly drugs entering our nation at an alarming rate. The bill would make the crime punishable by a Class C felony or a Class B felony if the smuggled person carries a risk of bodily injury or death, is under 18, or if the offender carries a firearm. It would be a Class A felony if the smuggled individual became a victim of sexual abuse, suffered serious injury, or died because of the action. But opponents of the bill told Holt and other subcommittee members on Tuesday that the smuggling provisions of the bill would instill fear into immigrant communities and create a chilling effect for people who work with the undocumented immigrants. No one at the subcommittee meeting spoke in favor of the bill. Multiple people said they were worried the bill would criminalize driving an undocumented family member to the doctor or a coaching coach transporting undocumented children to and from sporting events. Holt said the bill is not intended to outlaw those activities. Paulina Orsigua, who works with the League of United Latin American Citizens Youth Program in Atumama, said the bill would add to the struggles facing immigrants' families in Iowa. I deal with immigrant children and immigrant parents that are in this activity that we have as a club. Orsigua said, this would just cause more issues. I don't want to profile and make sure what their status is, it just doesn't seem correct. It just seems very discriminatory because you're looking at the color of their skin. Opponents said the rules around public assistance are unnecessary and redundant, as undocumented immigrants are already barred from receiving SNAP and Medicaid benefits under the federal law. The bill would create more paperwork and potentially desensitize immigrants who are eligible for assistance from applying. The bill would prolong these wait times and harm vulnerable populations. It would also create confusion and have chilling effects, especially for mixed-status families. Families where some members are U.S. citizens and others aren't, said Gabriel Salanda, a community member organizer with the Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice. The next headline reads, Iowa Dot to Keep Humor in Signs. The Iowa Department of Transportation has no plans to stop telling drivers to keep their heads out of their apps or anything else that would might distract them while behind the wheel. Recent recommendations from federal highway administrators urging states to, keep, to stop using funny or snarky messages on roadside 
message boards likely won't keep Iowa DOT officials from using a little humor, such as the infamous get your head out of your apps message from a few years back to drive home the importance of safe driving. We are using our judgment and data to continue with the program as it is, said Willie Soren, an an IDOT traffic safety engineer who is one of the people behind a program that comes up with the short safety blurbs displayed every Friday on approximately 80 message boards across Iowa, including two in Sioux City. Known as the Roadside Chat, the program began in August 2013, aiming to increase awareness of traffic fatalities and advocate for safe driving practices that can prevent them. Each week, an updated traffic death toll is posted on the message board and alternates every few seconds with a safety-themed message that is about 80% of the time addresses four main safe driving topics, distracted driving, aggressive driving, and speed, seatbelts, and impaired driving. The other 20% include awareness of school buses, snowplows, trains, bicycle, deer, construction zones, and other topics. Messages often contain, contain pop culture references. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Drive safely. And a nod to the movie Field of Dreams. Some are a little more blunt, like a recent one asking, excuse for buckling, for not buckling, bet it's a real killer. Critics call the messages distracting or incentive to families who have experienced traffic deaths. Sorensen said that Iowa DOT is not making light of traffic fatalities, but hopes a catchy message may stick in drivers' minds longer, reminding them to drive safely and help reduce approximately 350 traffic deaths that occur in-state each year. We don't think fatalities are funny. We're using humor to get a safety message across, Sorensen said. The longevity of some messages is a real thing. Transportation planner Dakin Schultz who works in the Iowa DOT District 3 office in Sioux City, said he chuckles when he thinks of a past message that used an oft-quote line from the popular baseball movie The Sandlot. Not buckled, you're killing me, Smalls. Still comes to mind when he passes under the sign. If there's a good one, some of them will generate conversation, Schultz said. Frankly, considering our mission, it's a departure in a way. All of our messages are serious, and it's still serious in a way, but it's presented in a humorous way. I always look forward to seeing what the message says. The image of the article shows a billboard sign over a highway, and it reads, Excuse for not buckling, but it's a real killer. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 6, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled, Handicap, in Des Moines. I'm Jessica from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. Today in the obituaries, Ronald D. Hansen, age 92, of Council Bluffs, Passed away February 4, 2024, at Chi Mercy Hospital. Ron was born March 1, 1931, in Council Bluffs, to the late Thoradolf and Carrie Nelson Hansen. He graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1949 and proudly served his country in the U.S. Navy during the Korean War. 
Ron worked at OPPD for nearly 35 years, retiring as the manager of the IT department. He married Merlene F. Medicus Hoffert on December 3, 1977. Ron was a member of St. John Lutheran Church, a past commander and life member of the American Legion Post No. 2. He was an avid Iowa Hawkeye fan. In addition to his parents, Ron was preceded in death by his brother, Gerald Hansen, sister, Betty Dale Cahey, and son, Mick Hoffert. Ron is survived by his wife of 46 years, Marlene F. Hansen of Council Bluffs, children, Joni Randy Hoffa of Council Bluffs, Jean Susan Hoffert of Cedar Falls, Iowa, Deborah Mead of West Branch, Iowa, 12 grandchildren, 19 great-grandchildren, three nieces, and one nephew. Visitation with the family, Wednesday, 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral services, Thursday, 1 p.m. at the funeral home. Intermittent Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors tendered by American Legion Post No. 2. A lunch will follow at the Spillway Grill Bar, 81840 Madison Ave. Memorial contributions are suggested to St. John Lutheran Church. Byron L. Lee, aged 76 years, passed away February 3, 2024, at his home in Council Bluffs, Iowa. He was born November 20, 1947, to the late Harry and Irene Ruby Lee and Council Bluffs. Byron graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1965. He married Vicki La Chapelle on April 30, 1971. Byron was a longtime flower blender for Congra Foods. He enjoyed his carpentry. Proceeded in death along with parents, wife Vicki, daughter Sandy Manning, five sisters. Survived by grandson, Cody Doss, brother Marvin Lee, sister Shirley Watts, many nieces and nephews, many other loving family and friends. Service Thursday 10 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodling Bayless Park Chapel. Visitation Wednesday 6 to 8 p.m. at the chapel. Internment Gardner Township. Donald Arthur Bell age 95, passed away Sunday, February 4th, 2024, at Bethany Nursing Home. He is preceded in death by his wife, Elaine, two daughters, Janet and Kathy, three sisters, Joyce Imig, Joy Brown, and Joanne McClett. He He is survived by a son, Donald Michael Bell of Palm Springs, California, and two other grandsons, grandchildren, Katie Rose of Denver, Colorado, and Charlie Rose of Council Bluffs. The siblings of Mr. and Mrs. Bell provided many nieces and nephews. Visitation will be Wednesday, February 7th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Mayor Funeral Home in Council Bluffs. The funeral will be Thursday, February 8th at 11 a.m. Jim Gard, age 60, passed away on January 26, 2024, at his place of employment doing the job that he loved. 
He was born in Council Bluffs to Ed and Joyce Gard on January 28, 1963. Jim graduated from St. Albert Catholic High School in 1981. He, he worked in hospitality industry and loved meeting people and talking to many interesting people. Jim moved to Colorado with his wife, Sandy, in 1998 and worked in maintenance management for many years. Jim loved to spend time with Sandy, family, grandchildren, camping, fishing, and watching football. He will be remembered for his big smile and his loving heart. Jim is survived by his loving wife, Sandy, children, Robbie, Stacy, and Jamie, nine grandchildren, sister Sharon, Lear, brothers Mark Gard, John W. Gard, Chris Missy Gard, several cousins, nieces, nephews, and friends. Celebration of Life Visitation will be held Saturday, March 23, 2024, from 3 to 5 p.m. at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 East Pierce Street in Council Bluffs, Iowa. In the sports, Cardinals pull away from the Falcons. High School Basketball After what was mostly a close game, Class 2A, number 8, trainer, used a late 22-5 run to pull away from St. Albert at a home for 75-60 win. The Falcons led by as much as nine midway through the second quarter, but a 10-0 brought the Cardinals right back in the game with three minutes left in the first half, where the teams battled back and forth again. I thought St. Albert played really well and shot the basketball well. Cardinals coach Scott Rucker said, for the most part, we did a good job at taking away their first option, but that didn't slow them down. After a while, we were able to generate some offensive for our defense and got some transition buckets that allowed us to have a good offensive quarter in the fourth. St. Albert let the Cardinals by three in the final seconds of the third quarter and gave every reason to make the crowd think this would be a nail-biter to the end. However, at Jay's team's TAMS, three began the big Cardinal run and helped Trainer outscore the Falcons 23-8 to in the fourth quarter. Tams provided a big spark for the Cardinals' offense as he scored 35 points and collected seven rebounds on the day that and Carson Elwood had a double-double with 15 points and 12 rebounds. Alec Lovely added another 10 points and eight assists for the Cards. The Falcons were led by Noah Narmi with 15 points and five rebounds. Jackson Len scored 11 points while collecting 8 rebounds, and Nick Ballinger scored 10 points. The Cardinals, with two games left on their regular season schedule now, trainer rides a 9-game win streak to Western Iowa Conference Showdown against the undefeated in Class 2A, number 4, Underwood, who defeated Trainer 61-55 on January 4th which was also the last time the Cardinals lost. If the Cardinals hope to avenge that defeat, Rucker expects this guy, his guys to give them their best effort. It's going to take a big effort, Rucker said. Underwood is a very good basketball team, and they're very, a very complete basketball team. Their scoring is balanced, and they're very strong defensively and know how to utilize their size. It's going to take a heck out of an effort from all of our guys on Tuesday. Trainer will, offend, will face Underwood on Thursday at 7.30 at 
River Arena, St. Albert, will now await their postgame season. Warm weather welcomes 41 runners to Lake Moana. The warmer weather lured 41 runners to Lake Manawa for Bluffs Tracks Club 10-kilometer and 2-mile races on Saturday. Daniel Fisher of Underwood was the top finisher in the 10K and Cody Smith of Council Bluffs was first in the 2-mile run. The next BTC run is scheduled for Saturday, February 17th at 10 a.m. For more information, find Bluffs Track Club on Facebook. Clark drops 38 points as Hawkeyes hold off Terps. College Park, MD, Caitlin Clark faked the defender off her feet, took a dribble to her left, and released a three-pointer. It was no surprise when the ball dropped in and Iowa was ahead to stay. That was probably the loudest the crowd was at that point all night, Clark said, the seller the sellout of 17,950 at the Xfinity Center. That was a huge shot. And then I think Sydney gets that layup, gets a couple shots on defense that we string together. Clark had 38 points and 12 assists, and number three Iowa withstood a gritty effort by Maryland, outlasting the Terrapins 93-85 on Saturday night. The Terps rallied, from an 18-point third-quarter deficit, but Clark and the Hawkeyes had enough answers down the stretch. The Hawkeyes won at Maryland for the first time since December 1992 when the Terps were in the ACC. This is the first time I've ever been happy, been happy to be in this press room, Iowa coach Lisa Blutter said afterward. Clark now needs 66 points to pass Kelsey Plum atop the NCAA career scoring list for women's basketball. Molly Davis scored 17 points for Iowa, and Kate Martin had 15 points and 10 rebounds. Caitlin did natural Caitlin things, which are spectacular, but I thought Molly Davis had a really great game as well, Blutter said. A packed crowd in College Park had nearly, had clearly come to watch Clark, but most of the fans were also cheering for the Terps. Maryland went on a 23-3 run to take a two-point lead in the third. Clark even shot an air ball from the left wing to the delicate delight of the crowd. I didn't expect them to shrink at 18-point lead in about four minutes, but we fouled too much, Clark said. The Terps were up 65-63 before Iowa outscored them 10-1 the rest of the quarter. Clark made a three-pointer and a layup and also assisted on two layups during that run. The Terps, struggling through an unusually tough season that had made them on the NCAA tournament bubble, kept it close in the fourth. It was tied at 76 before Clark freed herself with that smooth pump fake and connected from three-point range. She then fed a, t- a Fottler for a layup, and Maryland could never pull even again. This game felt like March, Terp coach said, Brenda Fries said. Just super proud of this group and how we completed the number three team in the country with the best players in the country. There's no doubt that we're an NCAA tournament team. Clark would have finished with even 40 points if she hadn't missed a wide open layup on the breakaway in the final minute. But with Iowa comfortably ahead, she could afford to smile. After Clark began the game with three-pointer, Marilyn ran off the next 11 points to take an early lead, and the Iowa star was called for a couple traveling violations. The Terps couldn't keep Clark under control for long, 
a partially deep three-pointer from the left wing, beyond former Maryland's men's coach Gary Williams' signature on the route, capped a 14-2 a run by Iowa. She made four of her seven three-pointers in the opening quarter. Clark did her damage inside the arc in the second, including a spin move for three-point lay. Iowa led 52-38 at halftime. Clark now has 3,462 points. Plum scored 3,527 at Washington from 2013 to 17. Former Kansas star Lynette Woodard holds the women's major college basketball record with 3,649 points from 197881 before the NCAA took over women's sports from the Association of Intercollege Collegiate Athletes for Women. In the lifestyle section, dinner for two, scallops are a perfect choice for a romantic meal. Our coastal travels last year had us enjoying tons of seafood. Clams in Portugal, oysters in Maine, mussels in southern France, and scallops everywhere, they were on the menu. In Paris and Santiago de Compostela, Spain, they served them on the shell with a simple vinaigrette and herby garnish as a starter. Memories of those beautiful seafood dishes inspired this dinner. Fortunately, when cooking for two, the smaller purchase makes the coast of seafood feel less painful. When menu planning, think about sides and imaginative touches to make the plate beautiful, restaurant beautiful. Creamy mashed cauliflower will line the dinner plate with a special meal. Then a half dozen sea scallops, sautéed in butter with herbs, nicely rest on top. Roasted tricolor carrots add vibrancy to the plate, as do pickled red onions. Scallops are an excellent choice in the seafood world. They're farmed worldwide, and Monterey Bay Seafood Watch considers scallops farming a sustainable practice. Same for farmed oysters and other bivalves. Environmentally, friendly wild-caught options are also available. The scallops sold in the freezer cause a Whole Foods, for example, are wild caught from the U.S. waters. Always thaw seafood slowly in the coolest part of the refrigerator. Sea scallops take several hours and can be thawed overnight. While some fish counters sell thawed for your convenience seafood, I prefer to be in control of the thawing and the timing at my own home. Fresh oysters and a glass of sparkling wine as a starter proves an enduring indulgence. Oysters should be purchased from a reliable seafood vendor no more than a day in advance. At home, keep them super chilled on a bed of ice in the refrigerator. Open carefully just before serving. Set out lemon wedges and horseradish spiked cocktail sauce to dollop on the oysters. Lettuce for salad can be rinsed and chilled up to a day in advance. To keep dinner less stressful, make the red onions and cauliflower mash up to several days in advance. Make the roasted carrots up to several hours ahead. Reheat the cauliflower and carrots while you are cooking the scallops. Warm the serving plate in a low onion oven. This simple restaurant trick serves us well when our food is fragile as scallops or other delicate fish. Playing friendly. American Kennel Club shares seven tips for socializing your dog. One of the most important parts of a responsible dog ownership is knowing that your dog is well-behaved and comfortable around others. Socialization should start early on as it can set up your pup to be confident throughout life. The American Kennel Club suggests following the tips for owners when socializing their puppies. 
Number one, start slowly. It's always wise to begin the socialization process slowly, introducing your puppy to various people, places, and things each day. If your dog hasn't interacted with other dogs before, don't immediately head to the dog park. Making sure your pup isn't overwhelmed will help lessen nerves around others. Number two, trust the nose. Your dog will want to get acquainted with their environment, which means they'll sniff around. Always give your dog time to introduce themselves to different smells and explore with their nose. Number three, set up a play date. The best way to ensure that your dog has a good greeting model greeting modeled is to set them up with a play date with a well-mannered and calm pup for a designated time. It's always a good idea to meet up after your dog has some exercise so they aren't overly excited when socializing. Number four, take a class. A group training class is a great way to get your dog around other dogs and humans in a structured and comfortable environment. There are socialization classes for puppies and classes for teaching basic commands. A class also is a good opportunity to strengthen the bond between you and your pup. Number five, reduce leash pulling. When you are walking your dog, it is important to not restrain your dog too forcefully on the leash. This can cause your dog to give off an accidental aggressive posture to other dogs. To reduce pulling, consider using a harness. Number six, meet lots of dogs. Have your dog meet all kinds of dogs, big or small, quiet or loud, active and calm. This way, your dog will have interacted with more than just one kind of dog. Number seven, supervise. Always remember to supervise your dog when socializing. It's important to ensure that your dog and others are behaving correctly and to prevent situations from arising. Smarter fast food. Five ways to order healthy, quick options. Fast food and healthy eating don't always go hand in hand, especially if you don't have time to make a copycat version of your favorite dish at home. Still, about one in three Americans eat fast food daily, so it pays to make healthy choices whenever you stop at the drive-thru. A salad isn't always the healthiest option on the menu. Giving in to your cravings and indulging in a small burger or grilled chicken sandwich can be okay too. Follow our five tips to help make you make the best choices whenever you end up browsing a menu for your meal. Number one, tune out temptation. A hungry stomach is a suggestible stomach in a typical fast food environment with posture size image of fried chicken and promos for super cheap combo meals can bring out your worst impulses. Don't let it. Step back and read the entire menu. Mentally eliminate items described as crispy, deluxe, or double, never mind triple. Most chains offer at least a few relatively wholesome options, such as a grilled chicken that can help you make it happen. Number two, feel free to skip salad. Don't feel bad if you're not in the mood for a fresh green salad. Many fast food salads are smothered with cheese, croutons, fried noodles, and bacon. Not exactly a garden harvest. Even if you order plain veggies, you might not stop there. Fast food patrons who opt out strenuously have healthy main dishes can experience something dubbed the halo effect, a feeling of virtue that drives them to reward themselves with fatty side dishes and desserts. If that sounds like you, order a modest meal that will truly satisfy, such as a hamburger and small-sized fries.
and think of it as pre preemptive damage control. Number three, tweak your toppings. Mayo, barbecue sauce, honey mustard, and ranch dressings can pack more than 100 calories per ounce and serious amounts of sugar, fat, and or sodium. Luckily, a little goes a long way. Ask your server to keep the sauces separate, then use them sparingly or scrape off the excess with a knife. If the restaurant has a fixings bar, help yourself to garnishes such as onions, salsa, yellow mustard, tomatoes, lettuce, mushrooms, and peppers. Number four, choose a smarter sip. You're, all, you're probably already cautious about classic fountain drinks. However, artificially sweetened diet drinks may pose problems too. If you want to cut down on sugar, order a beverage that's inherently calorie-free, such as a seltzer, plain water, un or unsweetened iced tea, or one that delivers bone fide nourishment, such as skim milk or orange juice. And number five, pace yourself. Fast food is served in seconds, and people can gobble it almost as quickly. That's because most menu selections are exceedingly easy to eat. No utensils necessary. Plus, studies have shown that people chew and swallow more rapidly in environments with loud colors and bright lighting. Relax and savor your meal, or get your order to go. Stressing out the kids. Seven ways caregivers add to their child's anxiety. It's safe to say most parents want to raise a child who doesn't suffer from anxiety. Many of these parents, however, might be the reason their kid has trouble coping with these challenges. Parents play a crucial role in shaping their children's emotional well-being and unintentional actions or behaviors may contribute to the development of anxiety in children. Psychologist Jeffrey Bernstein wrote in Psychology Today. Here are seven ways you might be causing to your, your child's stress, according to Bernstein. Number one, being overprotective. No one wants their son or daughter to get hurt, but if you're always protecting them from life challenges, you might never learn to cope with unfamiliar situations. Number two, monkey see, monkey do. Children are always watching, and if you display anxious behaviors or show excessive worrying, your offspring will learn to mimic that. Number three, no safe space. If parents don't openly discuss emotions or provide a safe space for their children to express their feelings, it may lead to emotional suppression and anxiety. Bernstein wrote, children need to feel it's okay to share their emotions without judgment. Number four, being inconsistent. If your child doesn't know what to expect from one moment to the next, it can lead to uncertainty and anxiety. If your example is one of do as I say, not as I do, it could have an adverse effect on your child. My dad tells me to stop sitting around and get active, but he just lays on the couch and looks at his phone, 12-year-old Scott told Bernstein. Number five, micromanaging. Children need to learn to make their own decisions and how to deal with, it, with the consequences. If a parent is always intervening, the child may never develop the coping skills needed in life. Number six, too much of a good or a bad thing. Excessive praise or constant criticism might, be, might create performance anxiety, Bernstein wrote. Positive reinforcement is important, but praise shouldn't be unwarned. Instilling fear, number seven. The world is, is a scary place, but if a parent is always expressing excessive fear or worry, the child might begin to pick up on this. Parents need to provide a balance perspective and help children understand 
and manage risks appropriately, Bernstein wrote. If your child's anxiety persists or worsens, he wrote, you should consider getting them professional help so they can develop strategies to cope. And that brings us to the end of today's reading for the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 6, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Jessica from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota 
has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.